Welcome to Therapy on the Cutting Edge, a podcast for therapists who want to be up to date on the latest advancements in the field of psychotherapy. I'm your host, Dr. Keith Sutton, a psychologist in the San Francisco Bay Area and the director of the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy. Today, I'll be speaking with Shafia Zaloum, who is a health educator, parent, consultant, and author whose work centers on human development, community building, ethics, and social justice. Her approach involves creating opportunities for students and teachers to discuss the complexities of teen culture and decision-making with straightforward, open, and honest dialogue. Shafia has worked with thousands of children and their families in a role as a teacher, coach, administrator, board member, and outdoor educator. She has contributed articles to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and numerous parenting blogs. Shafia's book, Sex, Teens, and Everything in Between, has been reviewed as the ultimate relationship guide for teens of all orientations and identities. It is one that every teen and every parent and educator and every other adult who interacts with teens should read. Shafia is currently the health teacher at Urban School in San Francisco and develops curricula and trainings for schools across the country. She was honored by the San Francisco Giants Foundation in 2018 for her work with AIM High, a program that expands opportunities for students and their teachers through tuition-free summer learning enrichment, and was recently granted Capert's Health Teacher of the Year Award for 2021. Her work has been featured by many media outlets, including the New York Times, US Today, NPR, KQED, and PBS. Let's listen to the interview. So hi, Shafia, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Um, so I know you because uh, our daughters go to the same school and we were just kind of chatting and I, I had to know about the work you were doing as a, a, a sex and health educator with adolescents and you are uh, working at a, a school locally here. And you also wrote a book called Sex, Teens and Everything in Between, which is just right on point for what's going on right now and especially what I'm seeing in my practice. So I really wanted to learn more from you about your work. And, and you know, first off, I always like to ask people about how they got to doing the work that they're doing today or how the kind of evolution of their thinking. Um, well, I've been teaching this for 30 years. So it started a long time ago. Uh, and when I got out of school, I sort of fell into be, being a social worker. Um, I started as a social worker. I got a lot of um, on-site professional development and training. I was working with dual and triple diagnosed um, youth who were in residential treatment as an alternative to incarceration. So a level 11 group home, um, all were gang related, gang affiliated, um, and in treatment for drug addiction. So it was a pretty intense time and I was yeah. young and um, had a lot of energy um, and, and really had an incredibly positive experience the young people I was working with, I'm sure you can, you know, um, you would understand, were all young people who had experienced harm as well as caused harm. And as I got to know the kids in my caseload and work with them more and really sort of gain experience in what I was doing, I realized there were a few things that stood out to me that, you know, ended up which is why they ended up where they were. And a lot of it had to do with resources, of course, um, have a lack of positive adults and guidance in their lives um, and dysfunctional relationships, um, as well as not having a very positive school context in which they could resource adults and find those things elsewhere, right? Okay. So, um, so when I started to you know, feel the burnout after several mm -hmm. years of, 
working so intensely um, mm-hmm. with these kids, I thought, okay, I really want to go into prevention versus this mm-hmm. intervention all the time. Because yeah. I was also thinking of my own life and something that was sustainable for myself. And in my own life, relationships and education mm-hmm. made the biggest difference in my own trajectory. Mm. And so that's why I turned to health education. Um, And health ed at the time was really sort of a new thing. People were pioneering health in the way that it's being taught now more Mm -hmm. so. I mean, it's more sort of a progressive, you know, um, beginning. And I was hired at Marin Academy Mm -hmm. um, by Bodie Brizendine, who is also a new head of school and said, I want a psychodynamic psychoeducational classroom in which teens can wrestle with the real issues that they're dealing with on a daily basis. Not like the mean girls movie of the coach who's at the front. It was like, if you get, have sex, you'll get chlamydia and die. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, um, and so we built this program together and it was really exciting. And that sort of launched my career in education. Oh, wonderful. Great. So it sounds like you got a lot more depth in, in the dynamic that you were teaching in and educating and helping them process it. Yeah, for sure. And she really empowered me to do my job. You know, I do national consulting and I'll go into a lot of schools that say they want this, but they're not willing to put the resources Mm -hmm. and the time and, you know, the scheduling and all that sort of stuff that needs to happen behind it. And Bodhi really did. Um, And it was great. It was super exciting. And um, in so many ways, for sure. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, yeah, health education and particularly, you know, adolescents. And I do a lot of work with adolescents and I do a lot of family work. And oftentimes, you know, parents, these were their little kids a few years ago that were very, you know, kind of non-sexual. And now they're becoming more sexual, um, maybe, you know, kind of uh, dating or hooking up or um, they might be, you know, making TikTok videos and looking cute, dancing around, things like that. And, and kind of helping adolescents navigate through puberty to, to help have a, a good, healthy relationship, uh, a sex positive relationship, while at the same time also addressing parents' concerns and helping them to be a resource to, to really kind of be someone that kids can turn to without kind of reacting and trying to quelch or, or shame or so on. Um, I mean, it's such a important time. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts or how you approach this in working with the kids. Um, You know, I think so part of my response is I'm just going to kind of model the language and and the way by which I talk to young people as well as their parents about this, because that might be helpful. And I think and just want to recognize, I know the audience here is um, therapists, Mm -hmm. you know, mostly therapists and to say and, and being familiar with therapy myself and sort of therapeutic models. Um, I feel like the sexuality conversation in many ways is a huge opportunity to teach Mm -hmm. as much as it is to engage in whatever type of therapy you are with the young person you're working with, because they aren't getting this education in -hmm. many places in their lives. And so it's, it serves them to actually, um, you know, through their, their sessions to acquire Mm -hmm. medically accurate sex positive information. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when it comes to the approach, I mean, I always talk about just to normalize things, right. That we are all sexual beings from birth Mm -hmm. to death. Mm -hmm. Um, even folks who might identify as asexual or ace, Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, as kids start to express their sexuality in different ways, it can be really challenging for parents because, we are also pioneers when it comes to sex positivity, right? So many of us who have um, 
school-aged children and mine are a little older now, right? Like, mm-hmm. so I have a, a daughter in college, a son who's an upperclassman in, in high school and then mm-hmm. a middle school kid. Um, but, you know, no matter what their age, we didn't get these talks. We didn't yeah. have a lot of this, you know, it's just, it's a generational thing that's been passed down. And mm-hmm. um, the socio-political historical context of this is pretty shame-based and stigmatized. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's hard to, in this, Um, current culture as well, where adults also are um, inundated or buy into this sort of effortless perfection. I have to Mm -hmm. be the perfect parent. I can't mess up. I can't say that I'm wrong. You know, vulnerability is is weakness. It's not strength. You know, all Mm -hmm. these sort of cultural messages that get in the way of our capacity to do this effectively with our kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think the first piece is just being really compassionate and generous and gracious Mm -hmm. with ourselves. Like, I think that's so important. Um, And to take the time to think about our own sex education, what our values are, where they Mm -hmm. came from, what we want to pass on to our children and what we want to change and make different and to get that clarity ourselves Mm -hmm. and and to talk that through with our friends or our partner or whomever so that we actually get some practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be to our kids' benefit. And, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned becoming the askable parent, right? Like, and, yeah. and I think that really starts when kids are young. Now, it's never too late. Yeah. If you have the opportunity to start with your small person in your mm-hmm. home, I say go for it. Yeah. Um, and people suddenly get nervous because mm-hmm. they feel, well, it's about sex and that's inappropriate. Mm-hmm. It's actually not if you do it in an age appropriate way. Yeah, right? definitely. Um, And, you know, if you have questions about that across the developmental stages and how we talk about concepts of consent, what does that look like in Mm -hmm. the kindergarten classroom, you know, things like, or, or, you know, before bedtime or during bath time, um, you know, with a, with a young child, we can talk about it, but I would say the mantra and the approach is um, to be straightforward and honest, um, to not be afraid of being positive. And I think there's a lot of misinformation out there that somehow if we talk about this and kids know, then they'll do. Um, And that's actually, there's no empirical evidence to support that whatsoever. In fact, the inverse is true. And if we empower young people with the correct words, with a normalized sort of you know, vocabulary and context in which they can have conversations about their body and being in charge of the body and how they feel in their body when they are in relationship with other people, with family members, with um, friends, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you're really creating a very positive sort of setting the stage for mm-hmm. building up, mm-hmm. upon that, right? So, I always tell parents, and I think this is helpful and therapists know that it's really about scaffolding Yes. right across time that you're collecting moments. It's the value of small victories. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're hanging things on that scaffolding as you go along. Uh, kind of um, and up. Yeah. yeah kind of building upon, you know, kind of adding to. Yes. And think layers like of an onion, you know, that you're sort of, yeah. um, and, and I think also the sort of, remembering mm-hmm. um, that all people right need an environment free of judgment and shame to share with open honesty mm-hmm. and that we want to as parents um, as well as you know what therapists are so good at is becoming experts in really awesome questions that mm-hmm. um, inspire uh, reflection thinking 
I think parents think sex education is always about genitals and the mechanics of sex and all that sort of stuff. And it's not, mm-hmm. I mean, the majority of healthy sexuality and relationship education is really um, about values, mm-hmm. right? Your family values and parents are the primary sexuality educator in a child's life. They need to hear that like kids yeah. and parents need to hear that and that they're not the only ones. Mm-hmm. Um for therapists, I always recommend in your in the space that you're creating that's a safe space is making sure that there are clues mm-hmm. that kids can pick up on um, that indicate you are safe mm-hmm. in regards to a sexual context. So do you have a rainbow flag somewhere, right? Yeah, like, yeah definitely. You have love is love stickers on your mm-hmm. laptop. Like you know, little details like that yes. are what kids look for mm. to tell them, oh, this person may be accepting and safe. Yes. So um, and I think sometimes we miss that. Um, yeah. And as, as you know, people who provide guidance to young people, I think those visual cues mm-hmm. are very important and ones that they're going to be looking at. Um, and what, how diverse is your, is your own vocabulary mm-hmm. when it comes to what the young people are seeing in their feet, yeah. how they're talking about social justice, mm-hmm. how they're talking about sexuality, what yeah. the issues are, how up to date are you with all of that information? Definitely. Well, you know, you said something really important that I, uh, particularly around the parents sometimes, you know, focusing on the the genital genital information. One of the things that I teach in in uh, when, uh, therapists and training around adolescence is like helping go beyond the sex talk and, and about relationships and how we relate to other, how you tell somebody like them, how you tell somebody you don't like them, you know, kind of all these aspects and really kind of expanding it uh, from there because it's not just about the sex, it's about in relationship. And I think that that's, you know, such an important piece that sometimes people forget. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think the sort of default to what is scientific or clinical or medical, you know, parents, and I think as adults, we all want to sort of check those boxes, right? Um, But what kids really need, and I find this in my work with them, is there's a lot of assumption that people make around um, kids understanding what values actually mean and what they look, sound, and feel like in practice and in relationship, right? So, you know, especially if you have a young person who comes into your practice in middle school, and maybe you're, you're using the word respect a lot, but haven't taken the time to say, so what's your definition of respect? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'll have a room of 118 year olds and Mm -hmm. I'll say, um, how many they're talking about respect? I'll say, okay, so how many of you have been taught to respect yourselves and, and others like your whole life, every single Mm -hmm. hand goes up, right? every single hand and say, how many of you are confident in giving me a definition of what that means? Mm. Every hand goes down. Mm. And so, and then there's a lot of misconception that somehow respect is treating people how you would want to be treated, Mm -hmm. but it's actually not. It's treating people how they want to be treated. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those nuances can make a difference for kids. Um, Kids will say, you know, Shafi, I know what the definition of consent is, but -hmm. what does that actually mean for me on Saturday night? Like, What is that? I don't even know, but you know, my parents are constantly saying, or people in my life are always saying, respect women, respect women. It's like, well, what does that mean? Cause if I, if he's reading from that cultural script, yeah, it's not, it's not what we're at, what we're thinking. Right. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, 
So, you know, I find exploring with kids what that really looks, sounds, and feels yeah. like in their relationships in concrete ways, because mm-hmm. cognitively that's where they are, is what's going to be most effective. Yeah. Well, I think the issue of respect is so important because I, I, I don't know if I've got the correct definition, but the way I think about it too is that respecting the other as an individual mm-hmm. with different needs, wants, opinions, and that they have the respect that they can exist and have self-worth in and of themselves. But I think like you're saying, like it's not just treating them as you'd like to be treated, but finding out how they'd like to be treated and, and that they have a right to those opinions and those um, uh, things. And, and like you're saying, right, I think there comes consent of finding where you make that bridge between what your needs and wants are and what their needs and wants are. And if that, that connects. Yeah. And I talk a lot about being attuned to your partner and what that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the values, you know, I used respect as an example, but I actually tend to sometimes, I mean, I talk to kids about that because they bring that word up a lot. Mm-hmm. And then I try to expand their vocabulary yeah. um, because I find it's really limited and accurately expressing an emotional embodied experience for all people, adults mm-hmm. included, um, that we have sort of a default to certain, tri- you know, the trifecta of what mad, sad, um, mad, sad, angry, or what mad, sad, glad, you know, whatever. And, and so how to give them a more nuanced vocabulary, but also to talk about very specifically things like empathy, dignity. I'm really Mm -hmm. big on resurrecting dignity as a word and a concept. Um, and you know, how I approach, I do a whole class on how to ask someone out on a date. And we, we talk about how, um, you know, success is mm-hmm. not getting someone to say yes, mm-hmm. but both people getting to walk away with dignity. There you go. And, and the focus is really on that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's a pretty basic concept of feeling like someone's treated you, like you have value. Yeah. And I feel like that allows, you know, that allows for a lot of individuality and differentiation too mm-hmm. amongst students or clients or whoever it is. Mm-hmm you're speaking to is this concept of dignity and Mm. um, what that is and means and what gets in the way and what the cultural narrative is Mm -hmm. dictating that sort of shapes and molds that in a way that doesn't necessarily serve kids, you know, in that big developmental task that they have during adolescence and what younger kids are aspiring to, which is to Mm -hmm. figure out how to have a healthy, intimate, sustained relationship. Definitely. And I think that's something that you were mentioning earlier about the, the aspects of social justice. I mean, you know, gender, sexuality, um, sexual violence, you know, consent, you know, all these pieces are, are, are brought into social justice and um, yeah, sexual orientation, gender orientation. And yeah, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that, those pieces, because I think that that's also something that uh, you know, I think it's oftentimes confusing for therapists, um, you know, and parents, especially when kids are uh, more fluid in their gender or exploring their gender or their sexuality. And I've, I don't know about your experience at all, but I've almost been noticing just with my own kids in, in middle school and some of the other kids that it's almost like heterosexuality is almost not being the norm anymore, almost kind of starting out saying, I don't know what I'm going to be. You know, it, rather than like, I'm, I'm not gay, more like just, again, being more open and, and kind of a process of discovery. I don't know if that's, you know, uh, just, just a couple little samples here in Marine County or whatever, but uh, yeah. 
You know, I think that's true. I think that we live in the Bay Area, which is sort of Mecca when it comes to those sort of <laughs> that's true. things. Um, and in a lot of my work now, that's not to say that it isn't in on the internet and in the social media space, and therefore kids in different places, in different contexts that maybe aren't so, you know, anti-cis heteronormative mm-hmm. um, and more inclusive and queer friendly Um you know, or if they live in a queer antagonistic sort of context that they're able to find affirmation through the internet um, virtually. And, but that's also really hard because there's this world that isn't your reality, right? Like in the virtual space, and then you're at home and in relationship with people or in school with people who may not be as accepting. Um, I do find that, I find that here all the time. I think it's really refreshing. It's something that I teach, right? Like Mm -hmm. that sexuality is actually an ongoing, our relationship with sexuality and understanding it is an ongoing relationship. And as Mm -hmm. we journey through life, it will be shaped and formed by the people we meet, the education we get, you know, Mm -hmm. all those sort of things, the relationships we're in. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's really beautiful how kids are really open. I think it's hard for some parents sometimes, and they're not quite sure what to do with that. Mm -hmm. And I see a, a full spectrum of parents who want to support, but don't know how to talk about it. And then just default to quiet, which also communicates a message that they don't intend, but is there. And then other parents who are so excited to be the supportive parent that they almost ascribe the identity to their child Mm. based on an inkling that they're exploring and questioning. And I think it's so important for all of us to just let that reveal itself, like create Mm. the space Mm. and give the kids the reflection like tools and questions to ask themselves to allow that to be revealed Mm -hmm. in a way that feels like their truth. And I always tell parents, depending on the developmental stage, just because a kid says I'm bi or I'm gay or I'm fluid or whatever it is, you know, depending on their age, that's very developmentally appropriate to to say in a way that feels like it's permanent. Mm-hmm. But we know that it may not be mm-hmm. because developmentally, there's so much left yeah. um, to take place and happen. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, for parents, it's figuring out how to their own feelings, mm-hmm. right? Making sure they have appropriate boundaries and being accepting and just open and seeing and creating those spaces so it can be revealed yeah. and unfold um, at the, at the, direction in some ways of the kid, right? Mm -hmm. Like allow the kid to be an expert in their own experience. Um, And I think when we, you know, give kids that option, um, it's it's super helpful. The young people I talk to and work with in different states and different um, contexts, um, especially in, you know, politically more conservative Mm -hmm. um, sort of cultural frameworks, um, it, it can, it's still, it's still hard. Oh, um, yeah, there's a definitely. lot of transphobia. There's a lot of homophobia. Definitely. There's a lot of misogyny. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the hyper-masculinity that's out mm-hmm. there. Um, so it can be tough. And a lot of kids also are just reading from cultural scripts Yeah. without a lot of intervention or questioning, mm-hmm. but not criticizing, right? Yeah. Like, Um, And not questioning in a way that's judgmental Mm -hmm. and asking why, but rather to just say, you know, so what's coming up for you and Mm -hmm. what can you tell me about this and help me understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Like just be super curious. Definitely. For sure. 
Um, you know, the, I, I think it's also so hard for parents. One of the things that I do, uh, I integrate some attachment-based family therapy for adolescents in, and really kind of helping the kids to talk and helping the parents really to listen, to, to uh, activate that at attachment instinct. And, you know, in conversations like uh, around sexuality can oftentimes be so hard for the parents. I, I remember one family I was working with, uh, the mother was listening and the daughter, she was saying, oh, I'm dating this guy. And she said, oh, what do you like about him? She said, he's hot. And she said, oh, what? that's nice. Anything more about him? Oh, he's, he's a jerk. He treats me really bad, but he's really hot. And she just had to kind of sit there with that and say, oh, tell me more about that. And really just, and through the conversation, just by really listening, it created some space. And her daughter was kind of talking about her ambivalence about whether she wanted to be or not. But oftentimes for many parents, right, the anxiety goes up and we want to protect and we get scared and we're like, oh, you know, and, and of course we want to check that things are safe. But, you know, oftentimes it's hard to create that space. And also as therapists, you know, sometimes our, you know, parent, inner parent, mama bear, papa bear, or whatever it might be kind of kicks in. And so uh, again, finding ways to, to create that space to help them process and support. Yeah, and I find it's really, it can be really challenging to making that call of, you know, how much do we allow a kid to have some independence and agency and make mistakes we know negative consequences are down the road, right? Like, mm -hmm. and to have those oh, experiences yeah. and to learn themselves and, or to ask them questions, get them to reflect and interject our own sort of, you know, thoughts and opinions about where they may be headed and if that's in their best interest. I mean, it, it's a tough call. Um, and I think post pam, you know, still navigating this pandemic post sort of sheltering in place and all those sort of things and, and still seeing the unravel of that and the sort of the trauma, it's like the death by a thousand cuts. Um, I have a daughter who was at the class of, you know, spring 2020, who was a graduating senior and, and just the mental health issues, um, the arrested development that we're now seeing kids yeah. play catch up with. Um, the lack of social interaction and all the learning that comes with that, you know, mm -hmm. the morality clinic that recess is not happening mm -hmm. for so long, yeah. right? Like, um, I'm just getting so many inquiries in my consulting practice because mm -hmm. I go to different states and across yeah. the country to teach and, and talk to people. So many people are scrambling, so many folks yeah. in schools to say, kids need like we need to teach them how it's okay to touch as they come into as as they come into community in more physical ways again yeah um what's okay what's not how do they flirt and i think having been so um intensely in the digital space for so long because mm -hmm. of covid you know i used to tell kids you have to think of the digital space as an extension of your personal space mm -hmm. when it comes to self-regulation, making decisions about what to post, how to treat mm -hmm. people because that really matters. Yeah. You know, all those sort of things um, and not hiding behind sort of this an perceived anonymity or yeah. something's going to disappear and not be there. So there's no consequence. Mm -hmm. um, I find that shifted because mm -hmm. kids' personal space was the digital space yeah. for so long. That was the extension of themselves. Yes. And now they're in physical real-time space with each other yeah. and they're realizing they're, they're using these skills they had in the digital space that they honed, but they don't work in the, in the, mm, <laughs> real yeah. time, in the physical space. And so it's, um, it's a lot, it's a yeah. lot. And, um, and in, for so many kids too, I find 
you know, that social shifting that tended to happen in adolescence during, you know, the ninth and 10th grade year, finding mm -hmm. your people and your friends, and then settling into that for 11th and 12th is still happening. Kids being iced out mm -hmm. of friend groups, mm -hmm. it's feeling like they had this really deep relationship with someone. And then now it's like, meh. Yeah. Um, and and sort of how they're trying to figure those things out a lot. They had no agency, a lot of kids, because mm -hmm. who they were social with did, was determined by how COVID conscious your parents were. Yeah. Um, and so it's just interesting to see how the mess is sorting itself out. Definitely. Um, and it's so great. They can all be in school and, you know, um, depending on where you live, ours yeah. are still wearing masks, which... I think we're hitting a threshold on, but, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot to sort through and talk to them about. Yeah. And definitely sorting, sorting all those pieces. That was interesting. I was talking to a second grade teacher the other day about the effects on the pandemic. And, and she was saying one thing that she's noticed is that at least those kids seem to have more compassion and are more patient and flexible than other years that she's experienced. And, you know, it was kind of almost like a byproduct of this, this generation has had to like switch and move and kind of, you know, deal with all these, these big, big changes. But I think like you're saying, yeah, I mean, I imagine too that what an effect that must have on sexuality and sexual development, you know, especially if these kids really are only online, right? And there's a lot online and particularly not having maybe some of those conversations or being with or flirting or things like that and, and kind of, you know, getting some distorted ideas around sexuality and, and, and all those aspects. Um, I wonder too, like, you know, I, I just finished reading um, uh, Come As You Are, um, Nagoski's book, uh, which is like, book. amazing. Love it. Like, it's so good. I'm actually in the process of going towards the ASEC certification. But the, um, but yeah, just so many myths or so many misunderstandings that happen for so many people that so many adults have because they didn't get this information, you know, as younger, like, you know, pleasure at, you know, at, at different stages, not just orgasm or, um, you know, being able to looking at, you know, how context affects or, um, you know, kind of the, the concordance between genitalia and our brain and all these kind of things that are so, you know, um, oftentimes not connected or not known or this education. Um, yeah, tell me a little bit about that. I mean, especially I think it, it mostly affects, you know, um, um, female-born uh, uh, women or uh, di different gender identified because oftentimes it also, of course, boys and men, but oftentimes there's a lot of, you know, miscommunication or, or myths or really just kind of untruths that are that are oftentimes told to create this, this confusing context. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of kids land in my class and they have to unlearn before they can relearn um, a lot. Emily is one of my personal rock stars, um, mm -hmm. just so fabulous. And I use so much of her work in my own teaching. Right. Um, and, you know, one thing I like, she has this metaphor for sexuality, which is the garden, right? Yeah. Like she talks mm -hmm. about the garden and, you know, I always think it's important to empower young people when it's age appropriate and context dependent, you know, context appropriate about the, um, 
you know, how we all have a sexual accelerator, we all have a sexual break and what that mm-hmm. means and how that factors into things, but also um, the, the garden. And I love the garden because it gives kids something concrete to actually mm-hmm. hold on to, to talk about. Um, a lot of times it can feel too intimate, too personal, but if yeah. you have something like, oh, I've created this collage, right? Like, which mm-hmm. is my garden and this represents this and this rep- mm-hmm. represents that. And Emily talks about how, you know, we can go as you become an adolescent or begin to uh, become older and take mm-hmm. more responsibility for your sexuality that you can go row by row and actually look and see what's been planted there and what you want to yeah. put out and what you want to put in. Mm-hmm. Um, I always talk to kids too about what's the criteria for someone coming into your garden? What can they take? What can they leave? Yeah. Um, you know, all those sort of things actually adapted that um, with her permission, of course, for my book, that passage. Yeah. Um, and then the concordance thing, I think for all genders is so important, especially if you have young people who are watching porn, which is so pervasive and yes. these days. Um, because I'll get kids who come in who are confused because mm. I mean, porn's a whole conversation and the sexual science yeah. of it and the delivery mechanism and the reward response. Um, but I'll get some kids who have built up a tolerance when it comes to arousal to the porn they're watching. Sure. So what they have to watch to achieve arousal or masturbate is in many ways, super intensely misogynist, intensely mm-hmm. aggressive and violent. Mm-hmm. And they'll come in and they'll be scared and they'll say, mm-hmm. you know, is this what I like? Is this what I want? Yeah. Um, and, and so in my class, I always talk about arousal non-concordance and a great example of illustrating that is like the random erection in math class, yeah. right? something sexually relevant. You know, I talk about the sexual relevant part of your brain mm-hmm. and the desire and wanting part of your brain. And most mm-hmm. times they're aligned and sometimes they're not. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe something sexually relevant happens in math class a hormone surge or your pants brushing your genitals in some way and mm-hmm. your brain goes, Ooh, sexually irrelevant. Yeah. Um, but your other part of your brain's like, uh, not in the middle of math class. Yeah. I'm in math right? class. Let's not turn on. Um, and it's huge also in a gendered way when it comes to sexual violence, because we used to promote this idea that boys could not be assaulted if they had an erection during the time mm-hmm. of sexual activity. Yeah. And if there's some sort of sexual stimulation that's sexually relevant happening, that does not mean that a boy necessarily wants yeah. what's happening to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of important, very relevant ways by which we need to talk about concordance with kids yes. and why it's more important to pay attention to people's words than their genitals. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. So, you know, there's that piece. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of pleasure, you know, I always talk about the sexual accelerator the sexual break mm-hmm. it's really about allowing alleviating the break so the accelerator can go on its own then just yeah. like ramming on the accelerator yeah um and that the end all be all which is the cultural narrative is not necessarily orgasm for all mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. um and that many different types of bodied people you know will enjoy a lot of other ways by which we explore the aspects of our sexuality um that have yet to be discovered mm-hmm. um, and what a joy that can be. Um, and so I think talking about pleasure, balancing responsibility and pleasure is so important yeah. for young people, empowering with them with the correct information. And that requires for busy parents, because mm-hmm. I know how that is. I know we, yeah. we both do, right? Um, to have to educate themselves on a mm-hmm. lot that they didn't get. Yeah. Um, And part of when I, you know, what motivated me to write my book was I would be traveling and go to all these different schools in different states. 
And the questions were always the same. Mm. Um, not only for kids, but also parents. And then parents would come up to me after the talk and say, thank you so much. I learned so much. And this is what's going on with my kid. Do you have any suggestions? And we'd mm -hmm. discuss and they say, wait a minute. And then turn record on their phone and hold it up to my face. Because oh, <laughs> they needed language and they needed yeah. strategies. And I was like, okay, how can we, how can we create like a handbook, right? Mm -hmm. um, for folks when it comes to this stuff with all the essential elements that in my own experience and teaching thousands of kids about this stuff and listening to them yeah. like, and hearing all their stories, which is the crux of the book, like what parents need to know, what are the questions they can ask? Where mm -hmm. are the resources to go for more information? Like, because we're busy. And I love to, I mean, you know, I, I, I got your book and then when I first started looking at the table of context, you know, I mean, it starts out with consent, right? Yes means yes. What we mean when we talk about consent and then chapter two about the, the legal rights and sexual harassment and assault and, you know, kind of chapter three, you good, how to teach consent and keeping it sexy. Like all these aspects are so important and then getting into expectations, gender, pressure, porn, love, pleasure, sex, you know, all these kind of aspects and really helping parents to be able to have these conversations. And again, I think it's extremely helpful for therapists to be able to be thinking about this and how to have those conversations because it's really focused on, you know, these are, these are the necessary conversations that, that parents need to have with their kids. Yeah. And I find, I, I really tried for anyone who works with children, that was sort of my audience as well as mm. kids. Cause the second half of every chapter is just the frequently asked questions I get from kids, wherever I am teaching yeah. this stuff. And I answer in, in very brief, concise ways as if they had raised their hand in my class. Mm. And I really intended, and it's the audience for that is, are the kids, but also for adults, one who don't know that information and two, to model the language that over the years I've found to be, um, age appropriate, right. Mm -hmm. And appropriate for an adult child relationship. Right. Yeah. Um, and that is accessible to kids mm -hmm. um, and the just right amount information where they're not tuning out yeah. communicated the important points that mm -hmm. need to be shared. Um, and I find that that's really the challenge for all of mm -hmm. us who work with young people is that piece. And, you know, for therapists in particular, um, I think just having some of that language, that's a little more current, yeah. um, I think for young people, I think also, you know, something that I wanted to just sort of make a plug for, and I don't know that therapists are really doing this much because the mm -hmm. focus is so much on sort of the internal life of the young person yes. is how important it is to understand and know what your client is at your patient is binge watching. Mm -hmm. What are they Definitely. watching on TV? Yeah. Um, because I think we really underestimate, mm -hmm. uh, the power and influence that that has and the opportunity yeah. it affords mm -hmm. to talk about these issues and explore these issues yeah. by talking about characters, you know, as if they're, they're people uh -huh. and the values associated with the relationships they have. Definitely. Well, I think you're so right. Yeah. I was thinking that myself, because at least even with my own kids, some of the conversations have been helpful with watching videos. Like um, there's the, the Oprah one where there's a therapist uh, talking with a mother and a child uh, and talking about sex and talking, watching that with 
you know, my kids and then talking about that kind of helps almost stimulate that conversation or um, it was a good one on, uh, you know, my kid, kid would never do that at uh, Dateline 2020 where, you know, somebody's like, hey, come and get in the ice cream truck with me and so on. And like, you know, they have hidden cameras seeing if the kids do it or not. And again, watching that with my own kids and then having these conversations around safety and, and all those aspects. But like you're saying, yeah, finding out about their, the characters uh, that they're watching or the stories or so on and, and learning about those as therapists because yeah that can be kind of the medium for for talking about uh, these issues. 100% um, and it really helps kids I feel like if you're talking about consent education so I bring media into my class all the time because mm -hmm. that is the primary way by which I feel like young people are really learning about sort of gender dynamics and yeah. relationship interpersonal dynamics and things like that. Um, and so, you know, we never want to create a situation in which kids feel like they have to have experiential context to participate mm -hmm. in a meaningful way in our dialogue. And it wouldn't be um, appropriate or responsible to ask kids, um, nor would I want them to, right, like to share about their own personal experiences if they have them in a public way in a classroom. Yeah. Um, and we do have a level of confidentiality, but not one that's, you know, a setup in which kids sure. are doing whatever, but um, more about sort of expecting kids not to exploit each other um, and mm -hmm. trash talk each other, et cetera. Um, and we, you know, they're constantly feeding me these clips that I use in class. And mm -hmm. so that's our shared experience, which is far yeah. more appropriate and easier to have substantive dialogue about mm -hmm. um, and to say like, okay, so did you see, did they ask for consent? Let's talk about context. Context is everything in relationship. Yeah. Um, did they get to walk away with their dignity? What would have made the difference? Mm -hmm. um, is there a gender dynamic going on? Is if you substituted gender with some other social identity, would something shift and change? Yeah. Is there a double standard? What, you know, all those mm -hmm. things that I think are great tools, right? Yeah. Um, for young people to have and really provide insight into how kids are thinking about what they're seeing, what they're watching, what their peers mm -hmm. are also watching with them and that they then talk about. Yeah. And the experience of the binge, mm -hmm. right? Like when we were younger, you had to wait a whole week yeah. before you could watch the next episode. But if you're watching a show and there's some content that's very deeply concerning mm -hmm. um, that's out there and you're watching a show and your brain is developing, right? And it's a multi-sensory experience. Yeah. Um, and the delivery mechanism, typically through a computer or a mm -hmm. phone or something like that is, you know, there's a dopamine reward response. What, like, let's talk about that. What does that yeah. mean? Bringing that into their consciousness, mm -hmm. I think is huge. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a nice way to balance out sometimes and maybe provide a little levity or relief if things are getting really heavy and deep, mm -hmm. not to derail if you're like on a trajectory with, you know, your patient and getting to sure, something sure. that's really going to be a revelation and epiphany and what, you know, yeah. like in those, in those aha moments, but rather sometimes I feel like kids need that. Mm hmm right? To be able to access those other parts of themselves. Definitely. Um, because it's become such a huge part of their lives. Yeah. Um, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering about, 
you know, we were talking a little bit before we got on about, you know, also around uh, a lot of the issues around consent and around uh, abuse. And, you know, you were, you made a good point about the, the non-concordance with uh, um, abuse and boys and erections. I mean, yeah, because one in four uh, girls, one in six boys, you know, end up experiencing abuse. And, and of course, one of the important reasons to be talking to kids about it early, because a lot of this oftentimes happens early. But, uh, but also, you know, of course, um, you know, I work with lots of kids, young adults, uh, adults who experience trauma, um, experience trauma through, you know, violence, through um, uh, in their relationships in with other kids their own age, um, you know, and, and yeah, I, I guess, and also some that have ended up feeling like accused and kind of, um, uh, you know, basically, you know, having to leave a school um, yeah. because there was, there was, you know, an issue that came up and, and such. And on the other side, someone really being hurt by another person talking about, and then again, the school not really holding that confidentiality. And, and again, also feeling like needing to leave after being a victim um, of, of violence. Yeah. I'm, I'm... Yeah. You know, um, so I've, sort of my my curricula has evolved in this way in in different ways around this based on what i'm hearing from young people and what i'm seeing in terms of generational shifts around this sort of conversation and what's happening and what's happening in the sort of you know greater cultural dialogue as well as then how they're taking what they're seeing and applying it to their own lives especially in the digital space because there's things like cancel culture and all this stuff which yeah. is really intense and has some very long lasting consequences for all children, right? Like whether you are the person who's experienced sexual harm or you're the person who's causing the sexual harm, there's a lot to it. I think we can be very confusing. It can be very confusing for young people and it's in their best interest for the adults to actually draw a, like a distinct um, difference between a distinction between consent as being an essential component of being attuned to your partner so you can experience pleasure in a really responsible way, an enriching, loving, caring, reciprocal relationship grounded in authentic connection, even if it's just for physical gratification, right? Like, yeah. um, and then there's consent. And I like to use a lot of analogies and metaphors with the kids I work with because they're such concrete thinkers. And for a lot of them, these are really abstract concepts, right? Yeah. And things that they're just trying to figure out is that then there's consent within a context of sexual violence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's the correct appropriate language? What does it actually mean? What are our legal responsibilities? And what are our ethical responsibilities? Mm -hmm. Because I feel like at least when I'm teaching, I want, you know, consent is, it's fundamental, it's essential, it's so important. It's what yeah. makes sexual activity legal. Like, um, you know, it protects the fundamentals of human dignity. Mm -hmm. And we want to teach our kids to go beyond consent. Consent mm -hmm. in many ways, we have to evolve out of this focus on the semantics around consent yeah. to encourage kids, you know, they got to understand that's the floor, not the ceiling. Like yes. they need to aspire beyond consent to ethical and good sex. Yeah. Um, and not good sex in the way that the popular media puts it out. But, mm. you know, and, and I have an activity I take them through to understand what good sex actually is. And they all actually don't necessarily need to have that experience to understand because it's an expression, it's communication. It's like the qualities of a really good conversation. Yeah. Um, 
And, and so when it comes, you know, when I tell, I'm like, we got to aspire beyond just not a felony. Like this is yeah. so important. I think it was, um, uh, I, I saw a TikTok or something and it was a comedian or something saying like, I don't, I don't want consent. I want enthusiasm, you right. know, consent, just like, okay, yeah, you can do this. Like, that's right. not what we're going for. Like, like, yes, I would love to do that with you is kind of what we want to be going for that somebody is excited and wants to do these things rather than like, okay, I'll do this. Yeah. And you can have a consensual sexual experience that is disappointing. That's embarrassing. Yeah. That's boring. That's regrettable. Like all those things too. And so I think it's really confusing for kids mm -hmm. um, with some of the ways we approach this conversation. Yeah. And, and so, and, 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 you know, and it's a both and that I think it can feel a bit daunting as well as it's exciting, right? Because we want, I believe we all want that for our children, yes. right? Like we yeah. want them to have caring, loving relationships. And we all know there's decades of research that tells us it's not your GPA or where you go to school that's mm -hmm. going to determine the quality of your life. It's the quality of your relationships. Like this yeah. is such an important piece. Definitely. Um, and so when it comes to consent, you know, context is everything, mm -hmm. right? So context I'll talk about for kids, a way to help them figure this out would be, okay, let's say you and your friends are walking down whatever street, you know, in, in Marin, maybe it's Fourth Avenue, if you're right. in San Rafael, right? San Francisco, Haight Street, whatever. Um, and you've had a long academic day and you're trying to blow off steam. So you're horsing around. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of, you know, elbowing each other, maybe poking at each other a little bit. There's some banter going back and forth. Everyone's on board with the banter. There's laughter, there's joy. It feels mm -hmm. like a stress relief. Um, it's bonding because you have the shared experience yeah. and it's joyful, mm -hmm. right? So that's the horseplay that's happening. Let's say some rando on the street sees what's happening amongst you yeah. and your friends. And they say, you know what? I want to do that too, because that looks awesome. Mm -hmm. And they come right up to you and they start doing the same exact thing that you're doing with your friends yeah. and kids. And I'll say, so what's the emotional embodied experience of that? Mm -hmm. Surprise, get away, yeah. um, violation, fear, all those things. And I'll say, you know, it's the same thing. He was doing the mm -hmm. same, that person was doing the same thing they saw you doing with each other. Yeah, but it's a different context. Mm -hmm. Context is everything when it comes to your emotional embodied experiences. Yeah. Um, so I think in having these conversations around sexual violence, you have because that's also why you can revoke consent mm -hmm. at, at any time because context is variable. Yeah, and I, um, I like the you referenced that uh, there's a little cartoon of kind of showing like. Um, somebody, you know, kind of waking somebody up with like a, a stereo, a stereo at night and saying like, you know, yeah, I, I said, I like that song, but I don't want to hear it in the when I'm sleeping or something, or like <laughs> somebody saying like, you know, Hey, you took my car and like, well, you lent it to me last week, so I can have it anytime I want, you know, and kind right. of making these analogies that I think are really helpful in helping them kind of wrap their head around this idea of consent and, and being able to revoke consent. Right. And and, and I think that's, you know, important piece. A lot of people think we have to go immediately. We go immediately to the sexual violence, like assault mm. and harassment and all that sort of stuff. We'll get there. You have to lay the groundwork first. I just yeah. think that's so important. And um, it's scaffolding again, right? We know this is how kids learn. That's mm -hmm. why they take arithmetic before they take algebra, you know, like yeah. it's, it's, it's just, it's logical when we think of it that way, but we mm -hmm. don't tend to approach it that way. 
Um, and the consent conversation is no different. Um, and how we treat each other really matters. Um, and, you know, when it comes to sexual communication, I always say to kids, it's think of a bear. So, you know, I'll have every kid in the class think of a bear, like the animal, a bear, yeah, and yeah. we all know what a bear is. They know what I'm asking for of them. And when we start talking about our bears, they all come up with different bears, of course, mm-hmm. right? Yogi bear, Berenstein bears, a polar bear, black yeah, bear. Picture a bear say, in their mind is Yes, different. exactly. And I'll say, okay, so what is it that your bear is doing? What does it look like? And the bears are all different and up to Mm. all kinds of different things. And I'll say, so what determined the bear that came up in your imagination? Mm. Well, I just, I was at a national park this summer, or I saw a documentary in science class, or I was sitting in my room and my childhood stuffed bear was sitting right in front of me, or I just had gummy bears, you know, snack. Um, Context, right? Our experiences. So sexual communication, which includes consent, is think of a bear. We cannot assume when we are engaging in that communication that what our bear looks, sounds, and feels like is the same as someone else. Exactly. And so we have to take the time to ask. Yeah. Um, and another analogy, you might have seen this in the book, would be French fries, mm-hmm. right? So you talk to kids about French fries. It's pretty universal. Anybody, adults. Yeah. You know, play it up. What kind of fries do you like? What are your sides, et cetera? You have this big plate of fries. You go and sit down at a table of family and or friends. And what happens? Mm-hmm. Hands come darting in to pick off your fries. And I'll say, okay, without assuming context, how uh-huh. many of you are 100% okay with that? Very rarely do you ever get anyone who raises their hand. Yeah. And, and then that gives you something to deconstruct, right? Like, mm-hmm. okay, so what is it that's not okay about it? Well, yeah. they didn't ask. What is asking express? Um, they recognize that it's yours. It belongs yeah. to, it belong to me. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, what gets in the way of saying something? I don't want to draw attention to myself. I'm afraid I'm going to be judged. It's just French fries. Um, You know, they're my parent and I have to let them have my fries. You know, all these sort of things, right? I mean, definitely get where I'm going, not to minimize. I think think they're great ways of having these conversations, you know, that kind of takes it away from something that might be so uh, fraught with with emotion because of the taboo or because of the anxiety around it or so on. Because I think that that's, that and like you're saying that that's the foundational piece is is kind of this consent and kind of knowledge of our needs and our effect on others and you know kind of building upon that and I think that's something that you know therapists can really take away because that's something that therapists can have conversations around with with clients also um you know in in relationship to their the the kids that they're working with and helping parents to have these conversations too yeah and I feel like too for therapists in particular, in you know, who are such experts in asking these important good questions, right? Like is actually taking some time to pause and to say, well, did you feel like, how did you know you had consent? Mm-hmm. Is, is that groundwork prior to say, so help me understand what your, what you think consent is, right? Like yeah. what are the ways you can give it? What are the ways you can't like, and just taking them through that exercise so that yeah. you're getting to know what their bear is, which is what you do on a greater scale, mm-hmm. but when it comes to sexuality, they don't have these conversations in the same ways that they do of other arenas yeah. in their life. Definitely. And so it's really up to all of us who have that understanding to guide them to that deeper understanding, that, that broader vocabulary, um, so that they are being educated at the same time that mm-hmm. they're, you know, engaged in a therapeutic relationship. Yeah. Um, for mm-hmm. sure. And then, 
And then being really concrete. So a lot of times I find this with kids. I'll say, so what's, you know, sexual harassment is about conduct. Assault is about contact. Mm -hmm. And we talk about what's included, but I'll say, okay, you know, and then there's coercion, which I find is what you really have to focus on with kids. Mm -hmm. Um, That's called peer pressure. And then leveraging social power dynamics. And a lot of kids, I'll say, what's a social power dynamic? They'll say employer and employee, Mm -hmm. right? It's an Mm -hmm. adult version. Yeah. And I'll say, okay, not that kids don't work, but you know, it depends. And I'll say, so what does that look like in high school? Mm -hmm. Right. Like what's a social power dynamic in high school Well, a popular kid and a non-popular kid or a varsity team captain and a freshman recruit Mm -hmm. or senior and power affects uh, consent and and all these aspects. So, so significantly. Boy, I could see that. Yeah. Boy, I could, I could talk with you all day about this. (laughs) It's such a huge topic and I, I really appreciate you taking the time today um, you know, and I, I think this is really helpful and definitely encourage folks to, to get your book and, and read more about it and have more conversations. Because, again, you're, you're talking about so many different ways to expand this conversation beyond like, you know, just, you know, here's here's the information about sex or genitals or so on, because it is so big. Um, so I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, thank you for your interest. I enjoyed it. Great. Thanks a lot. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us. If you're wanting to use this podcast to earn continuing education credits, please go to our website at therapyonthecuttingedge.com. Our podcast is brought to you by the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy, providing in-person and remote therapy in the San Francisco Bay Area. IAP provides training for licensed clinicians through our in-person and online programs, as well as our treatment for children, adolescents, families, couples, and individual adults. For more information, go to SF iap.com or call 415-617-5932. Also, we really appreciate feedback. And if you have something you're interested in, something that's on the cutting edge of the field of therapy and think clinicians should know about it, send us an email or call us. We're always looking for the advancements in the field of psychotherapy to help in creating lasting changes for our clients.